common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Tell you why I'm voting, and this is why most people okay. are going to vote, and this is why Trump will win. It's not okay. because he's the better, but he's actually saying things that Americans are actually thinking. Party is back crap crazy. I was going to say, you know, it seems like our political process has turned into a Monty Python or or a Saturday Night Live skit, you know? Bernie is. When's the last time you heard how many people actually knew who he was? It's not just reforming police departments. It's not only doing away with uh, minimum sentencing, but it is also taking a hard look at the so-called war on drugs, which has destroyed many people's lives. Not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predatory. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. You know, I see a socialist, an isolationist, and a pessimist. And for the for the sake of me, I can't figure out which one is which. Lying about Benghazi, of lying about her email, 
about lying about her servers. She does not have a track record of accomplishment. As a sort of... I never attacked him on his look, and believe me, there's plenty of subject matter right there. That I can tell you. But Jake, Jake, I want to, I want to give. Where, where do you stand on the issue of birthright citizenship? Well, I hate to say it, but Donald Trump has a bit of a point here. Um, the way you say that. I got about four minutes point. left debate. I'm going to get my question right I, now. I appreciate it, Jeb. I'm all for you. Let me tell you how that. We're moving on. Let me tell you how Senator that. Senator Paul, I've got a question for so, you. So you don't actually subject. want to hear the answer, John? Senator Paul, you don't want to hear the answer. You just want to hear the insult. You used your time on something else, so, Senator so, Paul. So you're not interested in an answer, John. Do, do a deal. An answer I need Senator crops you don't owe me triple ties and you had no crops at all you don't owe me no ties so there must be something inherently fair about that 15 percent still leaves you with a 1.1 well, million dollar hole you also have to do some strategic cutting you'd have to cut government by about 40 percent to make it work with a 1.1 trillion broadcast at a time. And thank you for joining us here on Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm a bit crazy coming into this show tonight. But we have a program that you will be talking about for weeks. And thank you so much for joining us. Coming into the program tonight, uh, breaking news, or not so breaking news, or heartbreaking news, uh, however you fall. Hillary Clinton has won the South Carolina caucus, 53 to Bernie Sanders, 47, and there it is for the Democrats. Uh, In case you did not know, Chris Christie, with all the robust he could muster under all that pasta, has now auditioned to be the the running mate of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, he's still batshit crazy. And that has been going on all week. For those of you who are listening on your computer and you might be having trouble getting to our site, the URL or the address is blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and you can join the many people who enjoy our open chat room, chatting about what we're talking about because they can't get in because there are so many callers. Um, I do have a note for you. Today 
at Inside the Issues with our friend Dr. Wilma Leon, our witness from the bridge and special commentator, Ruby Sales, was his guest. And if you have not heard that show and you do have uh, the devices and the hookup uh, to be able to hear Inside the Issues, Go on demand and listen to it. It is a wonderful, wonderful set of discussions and ideas about where we are in this country as a people. We want to also remind you that we have some hellified programs, and every one of these programs are archived at our common ground. So we urge you to come to our live studios at Blog Talk Radio and find the program that you missed. Um, and there are a number of ways in which you can listen to this program. You can listen to the program uh, from our Facebook event page. If you have subscribed to us at Facebook, you automatically get uh, our event. If you are not, you automatically do not. Um, and we would ask you and be very grateful if you would subscribe to our Facebook page, which is OCG Talk, and you can also find a player on our website at OurCommonGround.com that will provide you archives as well as the live show, and they are in chronological order on that player. So uh, those are the ways, and this is how we come into this program. Let me tell you a bit about what we're going to do tonight. It's Open Mic Saturday night, and if you have been with us before on Open Mic Saturday night, you know it really isn't uh, a crazy, you call me up and start talking about horse manure or how to seed, uh, irrigate your your garden here at our common ground open mic saturday night is pretty structured uh, i bring to the table my own agenda which tonight i want to talk about the 2016 presidential election i also want to talk about the issue of the supreme court nomination that the president is expected to make I want to talk about black support for Hillary Clinton as well as for Bernie Sanders because you know we are all Democrats and we are all in it for whatever crazy reason we have decided that we have made our investment with a party that does not serve us well, and we can talk about that. Uh, I'm throwing in voter registration and suppression uh, because I think that if we don't get started now, we're going to end up with President Donald Trump uh, in November because get out the vote is very important after we sort out who we're going to vote for. And as my dear brother, um, Alpha of the Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network is always saying, where are you going to go? So how do we make it better where we're going to go? The last agenda item that I bring uh, tonight to our open mic is MSNBC and the whiteness of the news, the whiteness of the network, and the protest in which 
Melissa Harris Perry has found herself committing um, corporate and TV suicide. Joining me in this, I bring my own people. Did you bring your people? I bring my people. My people tonight for featured commentary. Yvette Carnell of Breaking Brown, Pascal Robert, the Thought Merchant and of the Black Agenda Report, and Dr. Tommy J. Curry. If you're a regular here at Our Common Ground, you know that he is a professor of philosophy at Texas A&M, and you know them all because they they are here frequently. Our number tonight, and you need to write this down, 347-838-9852. And email, if you received our email or if you have email right in front of you, or go to our Facebook page and share uh, this episode of Our Common Ground with your Facebook friends. Um, you didn't know, but I'll tell you now, I own the domain and have owned it for seven years that two domains, talkthatmatters.com and blacktalkmatters.com. Talk That Matters I've had probably for about 15 years now, but Black Talk Matters I've had for nine years. And I'm going to start using it. I don't know. All these websites. We need people to support this this broadcast by doing some volunteer stuff, and uh, we would be quite thankful. Um, <clears throat> we are... We could categorize all of this as having lived or living through bizarro world uh, on the GOP side. There's just a craziness that never before we would have imagined. It's like they're all running for GSA president in high school. On the Democratic side, we have Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, Um, and there is so much political baggage because of her career and because of positions that she has taken that I don't think, um, I think we have to think through this black Hillary support thing. Bernie Sanders is not new to me. I mean, I should be the last person on the radio talking about Bernie Sanders and supporting Bernie Sanders. For the past, uh, I would say, seven years, I have been inviting Bernie Sanders to come and spend some time with us on our common ground. I even had an argument with his people about, I would say about five years ago, that he needs some exposure to issues which are of interest and in the interest of black people and that is why I'm inviting him. I'm not inviting him to do me a favor. I'm doing him a favor because I saw him as a very viable force in the Senate. And because I go to Vermont a lot and because I think he, I thought he had possibilities and I still do think that. So I'm going to bring on my panel, my people. Uh, Yvette, are you there? Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com. I am. 
I am certainly here, Jess. I am here. Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report. Are yes, ma'am. I'm, I am right here. Okay, let me go find Dr. Tommy J. He, I, I do have to say, he's under the weather, and um, but we had to drag him out anyway. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, are you there? No, that's not Dr. Dr. Tommy Curry. You see, the thing is that our equipment doesn't tell us who. Dr. Tommy J. Curry. No, that's not him either. I hope he didn't sleep through. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, is this is this you? No, because he doesn't listen to the radio. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'll see him when he pops up. Pascal Robert and Yvette Carnell, thank you so very much. Uh, Thank for you. for joining us and Dr. Tommy J. Curry, if you're listening, when you dial in, you have to hit one, and I will see you. Yvette, you forgot to hit one, so you get a penalty, and <laughs> that penalty is I get to I get to start off the conversation. This is how is this, oh, this works on open mic Saturday night. I, I want to ask both of you. Uh, to give us a real brief summary of how crazy you think this 2016 campaign, both on the GOP and the Democratic side, is going. Y'all on top? Uh, Y'all on top would you like me to go now? first? Yeah, Yvette, why don't we go with you first? Well, I, I think I, I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily. I understand. Um, your introduction and how you framed it, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's crazy. I I think what you're seeing is that a lot of people, the voters, understand that there's something wrong, there's something amiss, there's something broken in our political system, and they don't know what to fix it, what to do to fix it. So you have a lot of people who are saying, I am rejecting as best I can the status quo. So you have you have Donald Trump who is a businessman and business people in this country are, 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 are deified. They're they're you know, we build mythology around business people. And he says a lot of things that are true. And you have Bernie Sanders on the other side who is probably as far left as you can be and still be an establishment politician. So I think people are reaching for something other than what they're used to and I I do think, especially in the case of Donald Trump, that they're making a lot of mistakes in terms of what is actually, you know, the, what what are the real problems facing America? But they're just saying, I don't want what you have. I don't want Cruz. I don't want I don't want Rubio. I don't want any more canned speeches. I want somebody who's going to, you know, give me my country back. And I and, and I and I understand, you know, I don't understand the sentiment of this being their country, but I understand that feeling that they have that, you know, I even I even I would whatever you want to call it, you know, white privilege. People say I, I tend to hate that term. But even when you think about that, what they're basically saying is that this country isn't working for me anymore. I used to be able to talk to a friend and get a job, and that's not happening anymore. I'm, I'm unemployed. This is, life is not supposed to be this way for me. So I think a lot of people are reaching, and I think this is the, this is the kind of thing you see when, when, you're in that, when the electorate feels that much anxiety. What say you, Mr. Robert? I actually uh, agree with uh, Yvette quite significantly. I actually don't think that what we're seeing is a product of 
the election being uh, crazy or people going crazy. I think that what we're seeing is a fundamental product of the economic reality that the United States is in right now, in that we are in a very uh, precarious phase of late capitalism in American society where basically with the uh, advent of digital technology and uh, international trade agreements and deindustrialization, we are moving to a post-labor American society in that we basically are having both the technological uh, advances as well as the actual trade agreements that are outsourcing labor in American economy to the point where we now have 51% of Americans who are making less than $30,000 a year. The majority of jobs that have been created by the Obama recovery have basically become, you know, temporary service sector jobs that are not very good. They don't have high benefits. We have uh, the highest rate of black child poverty we've had in 40 years. There was a recent report that came out in Counterpunch that showed that we've had the uh, highest growth of wealth transfer to the 1% in this country since the Gilded Age, talking about the, back to the early 20th century, late 19th century, and we've also had some of the highest poverty rates during the Obama presidency going back to the 60s. So what we are seeing, quite frankly to me, is not crazy or irrational. What we are seeing is that Americans who particularly bought into the American dream, the notion that their kids would live in a better, a brighter, and more prosperous America than they grew up in, are realizing that that's not happening. They are seeing that their wealth, their economic position, their job security, their job positionality is actually very much threatened by the fact that the economic order is not working towards their advantage. And I think that, quite frankly, the thing that distinguishes the Bernie Sanders supporters from uh, the Donald Trump supporters is that the Bernie Sanders supporters are sophisticated enough to blame capitalism, and the Donald Trump supporters are regressive enough to blame people of color. But they're both angry about the same thing, but they're just using a different explanation for why they're in that situation. And the thing that's fascinating about all of this is that the people who have been most devastated by the economic realities that we've just discussed are African-Americans, quite frankly, Latinos as well, but more African-Americans. And the African-American community, I find, quite frankly, right now is politically scrambling to try to really make sense about this term. I use this term several times, Janice, I've shared it with you, and Yvette and I talk about what I call the reckoning. And the reckoning is coming. The reckoning is, is, is pretty much here now, but it's coming. And what is the reckoning? The reckoning is this. It's very simple to me. African Americans, black people, gave over 95% of their electoral support at their highest voter turnout between 2012 and 2008 to the first black president. In, in, in exchange for that, we had our historically black colleges and universities devastated, highest black child poverty rate in 40 years. We had uh, some minority business and development agencies shut down. We had the sequester that basically gutted uh, social services for poor black people. We had an $8 billion cut to, to food stamps. So all that being said, where are we now? 
with our allegiance to the Democratic Party after coming out of this presidency that we supported with over 95%. And who exactly is going to be the next president that's going to be able to rectify this chasm, this economic chasm that we are, and the people, after we've given all of this allegiance to this president who allegedly had this racial kinship for us, and who are we to blame for not putting any pressure on this administration and giving it a pass for not demanding any policy that targeted our community? And that's all part of the reckoning. And the reckoning is coming because now what you have is a neo-fascist, Republican Party. Let's make this clear. The Republican Party right now, in the 21st century right now, is a neo-fascist party. And I have something to tell people. If you think Donald Trump is the worst thing you have to worry about in the Republican primary, you're sadly mistaken. Because this is my philosophy when it comes to Republicans. Donald Trump is just talking the things that Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio believe, quite frankly. That's the way I look at it. He is saying what they believe. So if we really think that Trump is the monster here, I really think that people need to think again, because I look at the whole Republican constellation as crypto-fascist, and I don't think the Democrats are any better, quite frankly. I think that Hillary Clinton is basically going to implement a, foreign po- a mercenary foreign policy. I don't think she's going to make any of the promises she's promising to black people. And I think she's going to be another Wall Street puppet who's going to take us into World War Three. So that's how I look at the political constellation as it is right now. Dr. Tommy J. Curry has joined us, and we uh, appreciate that he's a little under the weather and he's joining <laughs> us. Uh, Dr. C., what say you about this craziness? I mean, I think I think uh, Pascal and Yvette have it right. I mean, you know, it's, for years we've been talking about the, the kind of failure of the economic state and division between white America, right? I mean, you know, before I've talked about this in terms of the niggerization of white America. And, I mean, this is the reaction that we get with Trump supporters. I mean, Trump is running on a platform that wants to take America back. He wants America to be white again. This is the Republican Party. Uh, this kind of political ideology is the same thing we saw around Reconstruction. It's what birthed Jim Crow and the kind of reactionism that we generally associate <clears throat> with the KKK, et cetera. So it's not surprising. Any student of history understands that any uh, progress, be it material or symbolic, for racialized groups is always met with a form of backlash. Uh, King understood this as well. So I think the question that we have to ask in the 21st century, especially since we want to say that we're progressive-minded black people today, since, you know, we have Black Lives Matter, but that's a different story, uh, is that in a world where we're pushing for civil rights, or at least the pretense of people recognizing us as if we're pushing for civil rights, uh, what's what's the environment that brings this about? So we've had increased police shootings. We've had increased black unemployment. We have an increase in black poverty. Uh, we have an increase in black underemployment. And at the same time we're doing this, we have a, a, per, a very peculiar vine for the black vote by the Democratic Party. Now, Now, notice the difference. I think what you see with Trump is the realization of a platform on what people, uh, what Romney couldn't do in the last election, which is win on the white vote. So what Trump is trying to do is take all the white disdain, all all the all the social negativity, 
uh, the downward mobility of a lot of middle-class whites into lower-class whites, right? I think all of that becomes the basis for, you know, what he's pretty much running on, which is white nationalism. The idea that we make America great again by making it a better, stronger, more militaristic white republic. Now, in that environment, though, the question that I think black people have yet again failed to ask is if you have public pressure and sentiment to do so, then what does that mean for the social environment where you want to pretend that you're advocating for more civil rights? In other words, think about what happened in Mizzou, right? Mizzou, you have huge demonstrations. What do they do? They cut the budget. They cut the budget for the school. So there's a certain, in, you know, there's there's a certain uh, incompatibility between the vision of a post-Obama civil rights era, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, and then what's coming in terms of the tide of, of white public sentiment and a growing kind of white nativism. And I think, yet again, we're misreading the signs because we're interested in how black people are now talking about or trying to be recognized by mainstream white America in terms of hands up, don't shoot, Black Lives Matter, you know, Project Zero. Uh, I heard, you know, um, the guy with the blue jacket is running for, pro- for, for mayor Dickinson. now. Yeah, I didn't want to say his name, so I just called him the guy in the blue jacket. Uh, you know, he was running for mayor. So what 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 do these things mean, right? These these are reformist policies. These are reformist uh, ideas. In, in a very scary way, it's actually social and political mobility off of the back of lower class black people who are being killed and slaughtered by a police state. And these things just feed into the very basic conditions that we're dealing with, which is increasing white nationalism, a kind of nativism, and a rise of white supremacy that doesn't want to take the kind of class disparities between the divisions or or the representation you see in Black Lives Matter and the working class black people who are actually suffering, being incarcerated, and killed. So I don't Mm -hmm. see a lot of viability for a new black politics based on kind of this representational race ideology it doesn't have a serious analysis of both political economy and a a historical grounding, which is this is what happens. Like, you can't really believe that these protests are not going to increase white repression and white backlash. So in that world where you have a new election coming about and you have Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Trump, what what kind of – what's the possibilities that you have to even address black, black matters? Right, I mean, even Bernie's going to – he's given a better – I think he's going to have better policies. They're going to target black people. But you're not going to have any race-conscious presidency in the way that many activists and commentary, um, commentators are suggesting is going to come about. It's just not going to happen mm-hmm. in this environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me – so the question becomes – and last week we had Dr. Lester Spence with us to talk about the neoliberal turn in black politics. I want to ask a basic question. I want to start with uh, uh, asking Pascal Robert if he will respond, and then we'll go to Yvette and then to you, Dr. Curry. Um, I want to ask the question, what what are our black politics today? We've got a, a black caucus who just endorsed a candidate who who is like Swiss cheese in terms of holes that we can put in her in her background in her resume uh, that are just detrimental to black people. Let's start with you, Doctor. I mean, Doctor Robert, the think the thought merchant Pascal Robert. 
Uh, well, to answer your question in terms of where our black politics are, I think that uh, our black politics, sadly, are uh, suffering from certain institutional problems that we've had since the end of the civil rights era and the black power era, which is the rise of uh, the black political class. And uh, what basically we have is that we still have brokerage politics in the black community. What does that mean? What does brokerage politics mean? What that means is that we have basically... Uh, elite college-educated people who speak as the voice of the masses of black people to the white power structure, but they are brokering their interests and their protection and their patronage before they are broken in the interests of the majority of black community. And the institutions that we, we at, the, at the Black Agenda Report call this this class of people, the black men's leadership class. And this is not only your elected officials, this is the Congressional Black Caucus, but this is also your National Urban League, your NAACP, your your your, your, your black churches, your, your black petite bourgeois membership organizations. These all make up the ideological and organizational mechanisms that create a political consensus of thought and ideology in the black community that basically tr trickles down a certain consensus in terms of what kind of policy and politics and politicians we support. And the way in which this is implemented is through certain sociological structures we have in the black community, i.e. one major one is the black church, a very important one, the black church. Also our membership organizations that basically all act as functionaries of the Democratic Party, the mainstream Democratic Party, in promoting these candidates that are recycled every four or eight years and demanding the black support. But the thing is, though, is that those those elites that are, are acting as brokers never make any demands of these Democratic candidates. I was talking to a friend of mine who was saying to me, he said, I am offended that the African-American community is being considered the firewall of Hillary Clinton and how in light of the fact that, and I've said this publicly, that Bill Clinton governed over the most damaging political administration to black people, not only in the post-civil rights era, but I would say going back to Woodrow Wilson. And he said, how is it possible that black people are giving support to this woman without making any demands? And, I, I, and, it, and it, it's, it's befuddling to me that in the wake of the minor threat that Bernie Sanders was, threat, was, was showing just after Iowa and New Hampshire, that you have John Lewis and the CBC completely throwing Sanders under the bus and not even giving him and using him as an option, as a bargaining chip, to say, listen, the Clintons have been bad for us over the years and they've been problematic. We like what Bernie Sanders has to say, but we don't know if he can win a general election. We are not going to, as a community, endorse anyone, but we are going to require that we have almost a quid pro quo level demand. I mean, in other words, we want policy, almost contractual level policy agreements between these two candidates to bring forth an agenda of, I want to be able to say that Hillary Clinton has signed in this kind of memorandum of understanding that she's going to implement XYZ in 100 days, to the point where it's, all, I mean, it's never going to be, but it's almost legally actionable for us to say that you betrayed your promise. You betrayed us on XYZ. In other words, make these people work, beg, and scrape for every vote they get in our primary before we support them. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. our black political class had taken that posture, I would have said that that's a prudent use of political capital. But they didn't do that. 
All they did was say, come on, y'all. Missy Hillary is here. The fat back and biscuits is on the table. Come on, y'all. We know we got the support. <laughs> Yvette, stop him, please. <laughs> okay. He is on a roll. Yvette, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to, to comment and to respond uh, on what Pascal has had to say, but also, do you agree that uh, this... I love the way that Pascal puts it in, in that there has to be a reckoning. Um, I, I think that there were too few people calling John Lewis to task on his comments about Bernie Sanders and his history with the civil rights movement and who gives a damn. I don't care that Bernie Bernie um, Sanders uh, uh, was arrested or whatever John Lewis was talking about. But I do care that that pretty consistently, more consistently than any member of the U.S. Senate, he has operated on issues that are in our interests. I can't say that about Bernie Sanders, but but let me hear what you have to say. Well, here's here's the thing. I and I, I made this I made this point to someone earlier. Someone earlier brought up the comment that Bernie Sanders made um, during the NPR interview. And they tried to ask Bernie Sanders about racial inequality. And he said, I don't want to do, basically, I don't want to do the demographic stuff. And and someone says, see, he's, he's very dismissive of our issues. And I said, the way I look at Bernie Sanders, and, I, and I'm, I have never come out as a Sanders supporter. I have come out as a person who is opposed to the Clintons. And any stumbling block that you can put in their way, I'm in favor of. But let when we talk about that interview, though, that he did, what he—I think Bernie Sanders is the kind of guy. If you tell him that Forrest Whitaker was at the was at the sandwich shop and he got frisked and he got racially profiled, I don't think Bernie Sanders really cares. I don't think that's his issue. I think his issue is let's deal with let's deal with income inequality. That's what I'm fixated on. In terms of in terms of what Pascal talks about in terms of the reckoning, I think he's I think he's absolutely true. I'm not even a I'm not even a person who watches Game of Thrones, but I know that winter is coming. Okay, this this has to happen. When you saw John Lewis get on that stage and do what he did, I never saw him. I was there. When you saw that, you knew that he was still using his he he was still using his capital from the civil rights movement to try to push Hillary Clinton ahead. And I was happy. I was I was one of the people who called him out on that and I was happy that other people called him out on that. Because that's you, you this is this is a misuse of the political capital of black youth of black people. It's it's a misuse of the political capital that he garnered during the civil rights movement. And this morning I'm watching CNN and I see this this, this black mayor of Columbia, South Carolina and he talks about how he wrote a letter to his daughters, and he says about you know about wages and and and, and women making less money than 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 um, than men, and this is going to be the importance of Hillary Clinton. And I'm just astonished because the most important issue affecting black people is being broke. It's about not having access to capital. It's not feminism. And this guy is basically this, this mayor of Columbia, this black mayor is basically spouting Gloria Steinem to me as a defense of, of Hillary Clinton. So what I know at that point is that the misleadership class in South Carolina, the black misleadership class in South Carolina got their game right. 
and they brought those people in. And you have to remember, Clyburn, he stayed neutral. He stayed neutral when Obama ran, and Bill Clinton basically called him and cussed him out and said, I know you did this, and I know you've been kind of talking behind my back or whatever. This this is also an opportunity for the black misleadership class in South Carolina to kind of make up for what they did by not supporting the Clintons when Obama came through. And that's what they're doing. They're serving a very they're serving an ideological function here. And it, what they're doing is very good for them in terms of their individual campaigns and their futures and their relationships, you know, with the Clintons. But it's not good for black people. But they have a legacy going back so many years of, be, of, of using that leverage and using that political capital only for themselves. The question I have to ask is when, if ever, you know, the reckoning is going to come. But when it does come, are we going to be like, like Trump supporters and just blame the wrong things and the wrong people? Like the Trump supporters aren't blaming capitalism. They're blaming their, their – they're scapegoating black people. They're scapegoating brown people. So, so the question becomes, when the reckoning does happen, who do we blame? Are, are we going to, as a black community or different parts of the black community, blame well, the people who are really at, 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 at fault here? Well, I, I think that one of the things that happens, Yvette, is that uh, in this overarching uh, presidential election, we forget about what's happening at the state and what's happening at the local level, because there has to be a reckoning there, because there's a black misleadership in every city in this country, and it reaches to the state house as well as to city hall, as well as to school boards. And I think the reckoning has to also happen there. We cannot isolate just presidential candidates. Because I believe that at the local and state level, that's where that's where black people specifically get sucked into uh, political activism, political engagement, political education that leads them uh, down the road, the wrong road. Dr. Tommy Curry, jump on in here now, and uh, no. Pascal, you're going to have to keep still. <laughs> no, look, I'm enjoying the commentary. I think, uh, you know, I think one of the dangers is that we, we forget that when we talk about black political attitudes, that for the most part, black people really do see themselves as political only in reaction to. So, and, and here's what I mean by that. So we're all political now because we have marches, we have Black Lives Matter, it's a presidential candidate season, everybody's putting in, you know, their kind of ideological bid either for Hillary Clinton or for Bernie Sanders. We're manipulating black symbols of civil rights triumphs to say that, you know, Hillary's been on the side of black people, which nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, when you think about even the styles watching the documentary on the myth of the super predator with Diello, uh, and I think that when you look at how that was manipulated by the Clinton administration, especially with the crime bill and you know the rise in incarceration, there's no way that we can even begin to articulate the kinds of negative consequences that came about because of that bill and because of their kind of political activism, which was vying for white votes and white popularity. So when we look at the generational reverberations of Clintons in the black community, we're talking not only about mass incarceration, not only about a militarization of the police to back that up, but we're talking about the very real destruction of black families and neighborhoods, which are the economic infrastructure of, of, of black communities all across the nation. So when we 
we talk about the political consciousness of black people, that's what we have to push. We can't just talk about whether or not they're ideologically compatible with Hillary or Bernie and reactionary against Trump. We can't talk about if they get upset because black boys are getting killed without understanding the kind of infrastructure behind that. Right, And what happens is a lot of this kind of disdain and rage gets taken up. You know, I call it Twitter logic because we just talk about intersectional feminism or we talk about intersectionality or these kind of progressive black politics. The fundamental question is whether or not the black publics understand that the infrastructure that's sustained under Hillary and that's going to definitely come about and be modernized under Trump actually put black people on the chopping block. Because they're poor, because they live in places that are going to have higher rates of poverty and crime, that means that the types of policies needed to focus on them, if they're not race-specific, are going to have to be class-specific. So whether or not people want to, you know, remember who marched in the civil rights in the 1960s or came about in the 1970s, that's the question that the black public has to answer. And that's not the question that's being po- you know, that being posed by any of our commentators. Our commentators are still trapped in this kind of neoliberal identity politics ideology. Did very Sanders important, do very X? important distinction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, did Sanders do X? Does Hillary Clinton support black people? Well, she's a white woman, so somehow we've conflated the idea of her being a woman with her somehow having care for black people as a minority. And this is this is the neoliberal <laughs> conflation, that somehow because she's not a white man, that she's friendlier to black people because of that simple biological fact, when historically nothing is farther from the truth. White women have historically been some of the most repressive, most, you know, horrible people to black people. The the civil rights, the evidence from the civil rights, who benefited from affirmative action, directly shows that there is a political and economic competition with the rights of minorities, as much as they want to disown that. So when the black community asks itself that question, we don't have to ask or depend on the rhetoric of Hillary Clinton. We have to look at what are the policies and who is she trying to benefit. Because if she's bolstering middle-class, educated white women, if she's bolstering the military industrial complex if she's bolstering the upper uh, upper middle class white people that's going to trade off with us that's going to trade off with our interests that's going to put us on the chopping block no matter how many times she apologizes for what she did you know 10 20 years ago the reality of the situation is the same the infrastructure the households and the opportunities for black social mobility uplift in this in this country has been devastated by things that she endorsed. Mythologies like the super predator that she's endorsed, right? And there is no way to undo that harm. And if we have a black public and black intellectuals too, these um what do they call themselves? Public intellectuals? These black public intellectuals that are just buying into the Hillary Clinton banter because that promises them social mobility. They're the next Melissa Harris Perry if they ride this bandwagon out to the election. That's extremely devastating for how we're educating college-educated and voting black people because what we need to focus on is can Hillary Clinton actually address the kind of inequities that she created by supporting the criminalization of black people? I think overwhelmingly the answer to that question is no. So then we have to say, can Bernie Sanders' policies do it? Probably not, but he at least tries to address certain kinds of economic inequities. Right? This is not going to be a situation where we could vote for our ideology or our identity politics and the world becomes a better place. Us being moral or being progressive or being you know, socially mobile Negroes is not going to solve the problem for working class black people. And that's, what, that's, what, that's the direction the political commentary has to take.
Mm-hmm. And where is it? I, I want to ask all three of you, and you can jump in here and ask your own questions. But where is that momentum co- going to come from? It it, it hasn't come from uh, hashtag Black Talk uh, Black Lives Matter. It 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 it, it it's not coming. It, it, there's a a vacuum and a silence on these issues that's overwhelming, that's troublesome, and problematic. And I know that for each of you, we all have talked together about this whole idea of education and or- political education and organizing of uh, of black people who are willing to make the time and passion investment in I'll, I'll be very candid with you. I want, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll put it on the table. As long as we have college-educated black elites shaping the political discourse of the black community, we are never going to really address the problems of black folk. Less than 23% of black people in this country have a college education. 27% of garbage workers in this country are black men. Okay, black people are them all are or more unionized than any other ethnic group in this country. The labor conditions of black people and the working conditions of working class and blue collar black people are more relevant to the reality of black life than intersectionality or or post structural conversations about white privilege. Quite frankly. And as long as we have these coffee table discussions about all of this, you know, uh, academic claptrap as as being uh, the, what is relevant and important to the condition of black people, whether, whether whatever our identity politics are, without understanding that the problem of black people is like the problem of all people in America is rooted in political economy and the stage of capitalism that we are in in America right now. The biggest threat to black people in America is that black people as a labor force are economically redundant to the function of capitalism in America. There is absolutely no value almost to black labor in this country anymore because labor is becoming obsolete. All right? That is not something you're going to hear in some kind of humanities class or social science discourse about, you know, uh, you know, the realities of, you know, double consciousness in the Boisean 21st century America. That's not relevant to the reality of black life. And as long as we have these college-educated elites who are dictating the discourse that is shaping the reality of what is affecting black people so that we can get our, you know, our, our talking points on, our tenure, or whatever else, then nothing is going to change. Because no other ethnic group, as far as I know, has this kind of what we call in Marxist analysis, comprador class. What is a comprador class? It's basically a class of collaborators. We have an internal enemy in the black community. We have a class of collaborators who basically talk like they care about the the majority of the black community, but are collaborating with the white power structure and presenting options that is more beneficial to their advancement than to the the advancement of the majority of the black community. And that's the reality. Anyone want to chime in? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, I I think that's correct. But I think there's also the structure of how white supremacy conditions those economics, right? I mean, those those 
those economic relationships are structured so that very particular outcomes uh, are predicted. So when you th- think of something like Obama, right, you have you have a symbol of someone who, for, for most practical purposes, is a liberal and a multiculturalist at, very, at the very best, right? And look what happened. What look what happened under his reign? The structure responded. Even though he's merely a symbol, he didn't do anything really concrete for black people in terms of policies. But the structure responded now with an idea or an ideologue who's saying we need a white republic. And you have a public, a white public, a disgruntled white liberal public that's becoming more and more conservative, right? So I think I think you're absolutely correct about the disposability of black labor. I think you're absolutely correct about the overproduction of capitalism. Uh, but there's also the ideological component to that, which is that it's driving it to a very specific end, which is reestablishing the basis of a white a white republic or a white empire. And I don't think black people have kind of grasped that. I think that the I, the attempts at civil rights, I think the attempts at identity politics are all a way to trying to get around that issue because what we're talking about, and I agree with you about the academic, the black academic class, but what we're talking about are black people who are socially mobile and socially are middle class, uh, you know, aspiring folks who want to kind of make their, their class climb on the back of working class black people who they pathologize both in public and in their writings. Now, given that reality, right, because remember, this is why, Black Lives Matter is an avant-garde movement. It's had very select people. It's sustained by an academic intellectual class. It completely alienates the experience of working-class black folk. Now, again, we have to ask ourselves, what happens to black politics that does not attend to the experiences and the reality of working-class black people who are the ones suffering the brunt of this? So it's it's poor black people, poor black men and women that are being shot. It's poor black men and women who are being evicted. It's poor black men and women who are, are largely unemployed, not the black academic class, not the black political class. So in that world, we have to kind of reassert the discrepancy between the types of works that's being employed and how those those positions and that status affects the ideologies that they're that they're giving off to black people. We're just Black political theory is just inaccurate. It just doesn't. It misrepresents black reality uh, for a kind of middle class aspiration that just that that just doesn't fit the realities of working class poor black people that's being killed at the hands of the state or through neglect. Is that you know you know I I think part of the problem here for me in getting back to your to your original question in terms of how does this happen you know like how do we do this does it need to come through activists or how do we get to a place we all talk about educating you know a political education being given to black people and 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 how do we get that and the one one thing that strikes me when i think about this is that we are confused and i'm not talking about confusion in terms of politics or or, or, or how the, the black elite, whether they be black intellectuals or whether they be public intellectuals or whether they be politicians, you know, how the, the elite are leveraging, you know, black political capital. The confusion, there's also a, a lot of confusion in terms of how media has skewed black people. In terms of, even if you go, we talked a lot about Cosby and the Cosby Show. Or even if you talk about Melissa Harris Perry, whether you talk about, whether you talk about dramas that have black people on them, there is this image of black people as being this now fully integrated, upwardly mobile community yeah. of, 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 of Negroes that we have now. It is, it is highly inaccurate. And when you think about the fact that three-fourths of white people don't have any black friends, how they know and see black people is through media. And so what they're, what they're usually seeing is one of two things. They're seeing people 
who who like the Cosbys, who are fully integrated and and doing well for themselves, which really by implication means that black people can do it too. If these black people are doing it, you know, and these black pe- these black people mean more to me than black people in my everyday life because I have no black people in my everyday life. The people I see at work are not the same. They're not the equivalent of the people I see in movies and so on because I see these people in their home, in their bedroom, in their showers. I feel like I know these people. I mean, there's an actual a term for it. I think it's called virtual integration. So when you think about when you think about that, and that is reflect. That's how we see ourselves too. So by implication, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We're somehow degenerate. We're somehow, you know, morally bankrupt. We're somehow in need of in need of repair in, in, in terms of the, the a role modeling or whatever, what have you. But the problem is that that is reflected back to us. So when we look at that, we think very aspirationally, this is who, this is who we are. They don't. We really don't understand that the majority of black people are the working poor. We really, I mean, a working class or poor people, we really don't get the fact that it's far more working class and poor people than it is the black elite or whatever because of because of what's reflected back to us. And I think the first thing we have to understand if we want to talk about a political education or any kind of movement is that the, there's a lot that we don't have in common, but the one thing that we do have in common for, the, for most of us is lack of access to capital. We do not have it. And I think if we start there and have a discussion from that point, we can, we can get somewhere. But as long as we're living aspirationally through people, through, through people such as, you know, on Instagram or through people we see in media or whatever, what have you, I, think, I think that has been very destructive to us in terms of how we figure ourselves, how we frame myself in our own mind. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 that's the but that's the piece is that all the political ideologies that are given to us today, be it through, you know, Melissa Harris Perry, be it through blogs, uh even the social commentaries of, of Michael Eric Dyson, you know, all these things are aspirational philosophies. They're not serious historical material analysis. They're not even they're not even concrete analysis about what's actually happening on the day to day to working class black people. What they are are their gestures for black people to still stay hopeful. They're gestures for black people to create new symbols of triumph. There's gestures to say, hey, every academic now has to support Black Lives Matter because it's at least something. Right? That's not how you build political consciousness or awareness about the realities behind you know in front of you and 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 we're not talking about complicated processes here in terms of the public we're talking about how does this policy affect the black community nobody's willing to even ask that question we don't get black intellectual public intellectuals writing pieces about here's an here's a policy here's its effect Nobody's doing policy comparisons between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. That's not what we get in terms of the black political side of this election. We're getting stuff about do they support Black Lives Matter? Do they support this candidate? How is it? You know, this that's not a serious analysis of how black people are suffering. And and the the most insulting part about it, the most insulting part about it, is that we're expected as a black community to wholesalely endorse something that has absolutely no reorganizational effect on the lives of black people. In other words, we're supposed to support candidates because they ideologically align with what we have generally determined to be kind of the Christian progressive notions of black civil rights culture, not whether or not they actually have policies or agendas that situate or alleviate the suffering that black people are actually going through in the 21st century. So this aspirational I've, ideology is a blinder to us more than more than a, a political posture. Mm-hmm. You know, I have long thought that we need to change our language about how we talk about um, black political and black economic empowerment. 
um, and that we have got to understand that there's a place that has to be prepared for any momentum and for any movement, and, and we are at this point inert. I've got to take a break. Our guest tonight here at Our Common Ground in this open mic Saturday night uh, are my peeps, Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report, Yvette Cornell of BreakingBrown.com, and Dr. Tom J. Curry of Texas A&M University, Professor of Philosophy. I thank you for being with us tonight. Our number is 347-838-9852. Coming up after this break, the the Obama nomination for the replacement of Nino Scalia and the Black Purge at MSNBC, including uh, the Melissa Harris Perry TV suicide. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm glad you're with us tonight. Not the working poor folks to death. When you pay your rent and your car no ain't got a damn thing left. I ain't tired of this. Oh, yeah. Somebody doing something slick. Get it all. Listen. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Computers, I know accounting and psychology. I took a course in bed, and I can speak a little Japanese. Yes, it is. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, We had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Declare show is where we deal with the difficult, real raw, right now. If it's real raw right now, talk media. Come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare show. Talk soon. Hi, my friend and colleague on Blog Talk Radio. Every Tuesday night at 9 p.m., the I Declare show with India Declare. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Dealing with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare Show. 
baby. Legacy was going to be getting us out of Iraq, even though those plans had already been put in place by George W. Bush. But okay, he brought us home. So now you have the guy who took us out of Iraq, taking us into Syria. Uh, you, you have this guy, this president, who, and I ask people this all the time, did you ever think Obama's FBI would prosecute Jesse Jackson Jr., the, the guy who basically stepped aside um, in order to allow Obama to run for senator? Because Jesse Jackson Jr. had his eye on that. Did you ever think? And I'm not saying that, that Jesse Jackson Jr. Is, is innocent. I'm not saying any. I'm not even. I'm not even speaking on that. But just speaking on what you thought at the beginning of this administration. Did you ever think that this would be the the administration that added Assad Shakur, Black Panther, back to the FBI's most wanted list? Did you ever think that this would be the administration that allowed banks to get off after systematically targeting the African American community with subprime mortgages and subprime loans to pad AAA rated? Um, 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 to pad them as AAA-rated derivatives when really they were trash. So when you look at this, when you look at Obama's legacy and Eric Holder's legacy, black people have fallen behind. And you can't, there's no way now in 2014 to make the case that people were making in 2009. The case that people were making in 2009 was Yvette, wait and see. You know, if you give this guy some time, he's going to do the right thing. If you let him get reelected and he doesn't have to be reelected again, he's going to do the right thing. And what did we get? We got we got this charity, this My Brother's Keeper, which asked a bunch of white charities to give money to little struggling Negroes. When really and truthfully, if the money should be given from the government. If you want to help black boys, you want to, you should help them from a government. You are the president. The government, this is what you do. Or at least this is what you advocate for. Because this is why I tell people all the time. People say, well, you bet, you know. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. He couldn't make it happen. Well, you know, at least fight the good fight. Like, fight the good fight for me. If you fight the good fight and fail, I will still love you. You will still be my dude because you put it out there. But you don't come. You know, black people in this country have been disenfranchised by government, not by charity. So when you And now, back to Janice. Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Of course, our feature clip tonight was with Ms. Yvette Carnell, the star of BreakingBrown.com, and you need to check her out on YouTube and at BreakingBrown.com because she brings it, and she is here with us tonight with Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report and Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Professor of Philosophy and Africana Studies at Texas A&M University. Dr. Tommy Curry, how you doing? You hanging in there with us? I know you're under oh, yes, the ma'am. weather. Yes, oh, ma'am. yeah. You, you're drilling down tonight. <laughs> All you guys. <laughs> you know, when I get quiet, <laughs> it's rolling. <laughs> um, I just want to spend just a few more minutes to kind of uh, – bring this full circle and ask each of you to uh, give us your commentary about who you think is going to, uh, who who are going to be the nominees 
and why you think that? The nominees for the Supreme Court? No, the nominees for, for the elect the 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 uh, the, the of the parties. <laughs> oh, 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 for the uh, for the for the uh, for the election for the presidential I, election. Right. I think right. that uh, for the Republican Party, I think Trump will probably be the nominee, barring a brokered convention in which Rubio tries to get the Republican establishment to take it from him, which will be a political disaster. And I definitely think, without a doubt, Hillary will be the Democratic nominee, barring she gets indictment, indicted for her, FBI, her emails by the FBI or more corruption comes out about the Clinton Global Initiative, and there's a story that dropped today. Barring yeah, those two I saw realities, that story today. And for those of you who have not seen it, uh, there is now an investigation into the Clinton's fa- Clinton Foundation receiving funds from foreign entities while former Senator, uh, former Secretary Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. You need to check that out. Yes, yep. but 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 Pascal, before before I I, I talk to Yvette about this, uh, let me ask you, uh, who do you think that Trump will choose for his running mate? I think, uh, and Yvette and I talked about this. I think Nikki Haley would be a very shrewd and very intelligent uh, choice. Uh, number one, she's a woman. Uh, number two, she is a person of color. She is from South Carolina. <clears throat> I mean, you know, Trump, Trump will win that state anyway. But uh, it it throws a very interesting kind of identity. Identity politics are hot in the age of Obama, and it throws an interesting little identity politics spin into into the mix. That he has a woman who's a governor from South Carolina. That will be an uh, interesting pick. If he wants to go to pr- the pragmatic route in terms of securing states, John Kasich. If K- I don't think Kasich would be willing to do it because I think Kasich. Well, Kasich that Trump- announced that if he didn't win South Carolina, he was out. Did he really? Yes, he announced okay, that that's- today. Okay, that's interesting. Well, I think that. Uh, Kasich, uh, Kasich, I don't think Kasich would agree to be a VP for Trump because he feels that Trump is such a you know a disrespect to everything the Republican Party should uh, should should really uh, stand for. I have a feeling that uh, Chris Christie is vying for the job. That would be the worst pick that Trump could make. Chris Christie is equally obnoxious and pugnacious and and, and truculent as Trump is, if not more so. And I think that, Ooh, that I love that, that, that word, that, truculent. Yeah, I think that, that the combination of having two New York City, New Jersey, good old boy types will just be too much for America. It, it's like it's like good fellas, good fellas in the in the in the White House. I don't think people can be able to handle that. So I think he needs to find someone who can temper all of that boisterous uh, posturing that he has. And I think Nikki Haley does that very well. Uh huh. Uh, do Do you think that the president will? While I have you. Um, not that you're going anywhere, uh, but do you think the president will be making a SCOTUS nomination, and who do you surmise it might be? Well, based on the fact that he was floating this Sandoval gentleman, who is the governor, I believe, of uh, uh, Nevada or, or some some state, the, the, the Republican Latino uh, governor, yeah, I think that uh, – He's probably going to go with a very milquetoast neoliberal. Maybe that guy, the Indian gentleman, what's his name? Uh, 
So it starts with an S. I forget the gentleman's name. Uh, the Indian gentleman. That we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yes, yes, uh-huh. yes. I, I don't think that Obama's going to be bold and do what would be politically good for the Democrats in the election, which would be to nominate a black woman, have her get rejected, and use that as political capital to drive up black voter voter turnout and give Hillary a good talking point. I don't think he's going to do that. I think he actually I'll send him the try. email. I'll send him the email tomorrow because that would be that would be the most politically prudent thing to do. Because right. otherwise, I think the Democrats are going to be. Excuse me. I hope you don't have children in the room. If you have children in the room, cover their ears right now. They will be holding their dick. Ooh. Janice. I'm telling you. <laughs> As we say in French, Kellangage. <laughs> because they will not be able to match the white people who are going to come out in droves. These people have been coming out to caucuses, and on Tuesday, it's going to be on. And the Democratic Party National Committee has done nothing because they've been too busy trying to shore up Hillary Clinton. Yeah, they actually the Democratic the the DNC has intentionally suppressed voter turnout and registration out of fear that new and younger voters would support Sanders instead of Hillary. That's right. Intentionally. That what is about you, Beth? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I think I think Pascal is right in terms of who our nominees are going to be. I don't think I think the insurgency in the Republican Party is strong enough. We've seen that to push uh, to push Trump through to the nomination. It, it's not strong enough in, in the Democratic Party to push Sanders anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I think I think I think that's where we are. Um, and, and I would also agree, I, I thought everybody was insane when they started talking about Chris Christie being a potential nominee. You know, Trump needs to be softened. He doesn't need to be hardened. So, you know, and, and I think I think that would actually, people, people, you know, say, wonder if he's taking a chance by, by, by kind of bringing on Nikki Haley and just angering people like Ann Coulter, who, is, who, who are people who are just racist across the board, even regardless of ideology. And, and I say, listen, what this, what this sets up for Trump if he picks her? Is 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 for the Republican Party to make history, right? Because she comes from the space that president presidential nominees normally come from. They normally, you know, are governors of states. They run states. That's where they come from. And so she is then set up to run for president and make history. Because I I think the Republicans would like that. They would like to do that. You know, in terms of of countering the effect of Obama and countering this this idea that they're that they're white and have their own little identity identitarian, you know, in the White House to carry through you know, policies that are detrimental to people who look like Nikki Haley. So I, I, I definitely think that's where we're headed in terms of in terms of where this election is going. Mm-hmm. Tommy, what say you? It's tough to disagree with that. Um, <clears throat> I, think, I think Trump is going to run with a woman. I think that that's – because, I mean, when you look at his indicts of Hillary Clinton, uh, I think that's the – that's the most aggressive way that he could combat kind of her liberal or neoliberal feminist politics, right? That it's time for a woman in the White House, pretty much. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know Nikki Haley, maybe, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if he goes with somebody crazy like Palin. You know, I think he's just so nationalistic that I think that either one of those two, well, you know, Haley gives him a different perspective because she's been critical of him in the past. But I think that even with someone as crazy and as ridiculously ignorant as Palin, it's it's not it's not actually about running the running the government. It's about whether or not you can get the public to buy into the story. And with the rise of the Tea Parties that Palin was involved with, and just with the nationalist sentiment that you know he's been playing up in terms of increasing xenophobia, et cetera, I think she fits with that ideology. So I think I think either one of those two people are the strategy for for him. But here's the thing, and this is where it's going to be very entertaining, the Republican National Convention. Uh, I am thinking that the money people behind Marco Rubio are going to be hunting for a brokered convention. Well, Rubio has um, already stated publicly that he's, that's, that's, he's going to go that way. Rubio laid and, down and, the gauntlet today. And the today. thing is that Rubio... Scary, scary, scary stuff. Um, the whole idea that there's there might be a, a president or could be a president Rubio, um, that that he's been targeted as the establishment GOP. That's candidate. correct. So. Yeah. It's going to be very entertaining. It's going to be a stone shootout. Can I, can I, can I ask a question? And, I, and this is just something that I'm wondering. If we told you no, then what would you do? <laughs> I had to fight for you. Like, hey, on your radio show. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering if they do a brokered convention, who's going to do this brokering? Like the people who the people who are following, even even the the elected officials, everyone who's following Donald Trump. His supporters. Who is going to tell those people no, or who is going to who is going to broker on behalf of those people for a different candidate? I just don't even see how that's feasible. I understand why Rubio wants to do it. I understand why establishment Republicans are thinking about it. But I just think you have blood on the convention floor if you try to go that route. Well, that's why I'm saying it's going to be a shootout because one of the things I have noted is that Rents Prince Rents Previs has been. Totally silent and absent. I think he is scared shitless of Donald Trump. He won't say anything about the GOP because he's afraid he might offend Donald Trump. And and who's going to broker it? The people who have given millions of dollars. Uh, to, then you have an insurrection. That's right. Millions of dollars because I don't think that the 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 Bush family legacy is going to go in, down in flames like this. I really don't. I think there's going to be some kind of Bush component in all of this. We are off schedule, uh, and we've got calls, and I want to ask our callers, stay on the, con- uh, on the content that's already been here. We're not talking about... Uh, the tornadoes in the southwest today. We are talking about what the panel has talked about. If you have a comment or a question for them, I'm good with you. Otherwise, we don't have the time. 404, you're on the air with my people. 
Hey, good afternoon, good uh, evening, uh, my people. Hey, I got two questions. <laughs> yeah, you one of my people too. You know, no, but this I big west, this big wraps. west, this big west, this big oh, west, this big west. I always okay. yeah. Real quick. But uh, I got, I got two questions. Are y'all familiar with this uh, group called uh, I Am One of the Million Black Conscious Voters and Contributors? And the next question is, uh, y'all was talking about uh, about the working class. See, do y'all know that by twenty twenty, I think anybody that's making. Less than twelve dollars an hour, they will be replaced with robots. See, I'm an electrician, so I'm up there in the money a little bit. I'm just feeling feeling sorry for my people that's making less than twelve dollars an hour. They will be replaced by robotics, man. Okay, that's my two questions. Okay, thank you, uh, Big West. Good to hear from you. Let's yep. get an answer. I don't, I I don't know anything about that. I'm I'm familiar with that movement. It actually comes out of Pennsylvania. Those brothers who have that show, a uh, time, a uh, time for awakening. They have oh, this okay. uh, one million, uh-huh. con- uh, one million conscious voters program to organize one million uh, black registered voters to basically effectively use their politics in in this election, in this particular election era. Okay. I don't know exactly where they're where they're going with that, but I do know that that I've I've, I've heard of that movement. In terms of the robots, I think it's interesting. It may sound kind of facetious, but. The gentleman is actually correct. There's a very, very popular book that's being circulated in. It's called The Rise of the Robots. And uh, even uh, even uh, Bill Gates talked about this book. And what The Rise of the Robots talks about is that basically that the stage of robotic technology right now in, uh, in, uh, in the American industry has come to the point that many of not only just basic tasks, but sophisticated crafts, and and even in, uh, high uh, intellectual uh, intellectual requirements in terms of jobs can be fulfilled by these robotic technologies. I'm talking about things like journalism. I'm talking things like drafting, legal analysis, uh, mm-hmm. some levels of accounting, uh, 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 most for manufacturing. That uh, what this book, The Rise of the Robots, is basically talking about. You know, the technology of robotic development of really making much of labor obsolete is really here. So ironically what the gentleman is talking about is actually not uh yeah. it's not a stretch of the imagination the, the, at all. It's the not far fetched. Yeah, the Associated Press I think is already writing some basic articles with algorithms. I think I saw that a while back. So yeah, it's coming. Mhm. Mhm. Uh, I mean when you think of, when you think about it, robots are choosing your government employees because they use readers. For resumes, and if you don't wow, put the right incredible. words in a resume, you don't even get called. Uh, we're going to go to. I'm glad you knew something uh, about that. You know, Big West brings some interesting uh, points and perspectives to this show. He's been with us for uh, a very long time, not our entire 33 years, but. Um, he was. He started talking about the new electric boxes and how electric boxes are red, and how dangerous they were to the health of people who live in those houses. And they started. Inst- most of the uh, utility companies started installing them about five years ago. Well, there is. Uh, there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine about that last year, and. The minute that I read it, 
I said Big West told us about that. <laughs> Let's go to, and I thank all of you who are holding on, but we've got to get to the, the next subject, and I hope you'll make your comments or your questions brief. 312, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Hey, Janice. Thanks for taking the call. Um, guests hey, um, It's good to hear you again. Um, real quick question. What about um, turnout, voter turnout? So far in the primaries, it seems as though the uh, GOP has turned out a lot stronger than the, uh, in the Democratic primaries. Do we, can we expect that to be a trend in the primaries and, you know, even for the general election? Let's get a, let's get an answer for you. Thank you for your call, House. I'm sorry I'm rushing tonight, but I think next week um, <coughs> we'll talk more about this. Okay. Thanks. Anybody want to take that? Well, uh, he's definitely right again, again that according to the first three or four states of the primaries, uh, Democratic Party turnout was down anywhere between 15 to 25 percent. And Republican turnout was up anywhere between 25 and over 40 percent. I did see, according to South Carolina primary data tonight, that the black voter turnout was higher than expected. I don't know if it set records, uh, but and, uh, I'm not sure. In ter- but it's overall, in terms of Republican participation, their participation in the primaries has definitely been much more energized than uh, the Democratic Party. In uh, in uh, in these primaries, and if you compound mm-hmm. that with the reality that uh, you know the Democrats are not registering voters in the same numbers in the numbers that they need to really cut, combat this reality, I think it's a very precarious uh, situation for the Democratic Party. And I'll be very candid with you: uh, I don't see it being a total impossibility that even a Donald Trump would be able to beat Hillary Clinton in this election. I'll be very honest. I Whoa. think her negatives are so high. I think her negatives are so high. I think that the black voter turnout is not going to be as energized as people think, even for Trump, because Trump really has been very careful to tap dance around offending black racial sensibilities as much as Latinos. And, you know, I've, I've actually heard some black people who find Trump interesting. And also in light of the fact that Trump is not as offensive in many ways as Rubio or Cruz, uh, I can see many black folk, if not saying they would vote for Trump, but not seeing him as much as the existential threat that many people perceive. And quite frankly, the way I'm looking at this turnout, in the key swing states of North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, Virginia, uh, Colorado and a few other places. If black people and people of color don't turn out in high numbers, I don't see how the Democrats win those win those states, and I don't see how they win this election. Mm-hmm. That's that's really scary. And 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 the thing is, whether you know, no matter how you feel about Donald Trump, he energizes the people. That I mean, he he's always talking about us. If you look at the way in which Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and don't forget, this is Hillary Clinton's second time around. I mean, uh, in the second time around is always not the best time, um, the best round. Uh, I think she got her best round 
when she ran against Barack Obama. And I think in the second time around, she's looking a bit dull. But they both, both Democratic candidates, they seem to be on the surface self-serving. It's all, you can pick up, I'm campaigning from them. With Donald Trump, you don't pick that up. You pick it up that he's trying to inspire the people that he inspires who likes him. And it's very disconcerting. I'm going to go to one more call, and you've got to make it real brief. We've got two more things to cover tonight. In my next life, I'll have three hours. 646, you're on the air. Hey, 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 BJ, this is, this is Jay. Oh, Listen, this I will is make Jay. This, I will make this quick. Yvette, I would just like to thank you for your analysis today on Mrs. MHP. You were so on point. I hope people listened um, so they could get a clue on what's about to happen to this Negro piece. It, it's okay. going to be an absolute slaughter. But let me get to my quick point. That, I thought that was your point. No, no, no. This How is the quick point. The quick, no, this, this is the quick one. Donald Trump, if he wins the presidency, America will go to hell faster than it already is because nobody on the world stage will deal with him. Have a good night, all. Okay, Jay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's the fastest Jay has come through here ever. We're going to switch um, tables here. It, did everybody get to the other table? Um, and start talking about this whole issue of MSNBC and the Black Purge. Here's what I've got. That's for my estimation. You're going to see that, you know, a lot of these people that we trusted, to kind of give us commentary and speak from a, a space of black politics, we're actually speaking from a place of black identity and, 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 and actually sort of looking at Obama through a kind of Messiah-like lens, and that's a problem. And I think we don't need that kind of influence in the black community because it hasn't, it hasn't, it hasn't boded well. Said the signifying monkey to the lion one day, he has a great big elephant down the way. Talking, I'm sorry to say about your mama in a scandalous way. Yeah, he's talking about your mama and your grandma too. And he don't show too much respect to you. Now, you weren't Chad, and I sure am glad, because what he said about your mama made me mad. From the what is, what is riskier than living poor in America? Seriously, what in the world is riskier than being a poor person in America? I live in a neighborhood. And got away. What I want to tell you, the monkey hollers then, is if you fool with me, I'll stick the elephant on you again. The lion just shook his head and said, you jive. If you and your monkey children want to keep alive, up in them trees is where you better stay. And that's where they are to this big day. Signifying monkey, stay up in your tree. And we are going to talk about Melissa Harris Perry. Her TV show is over. 
with a celebration or a cancellation, but with a tug of war. And that tug of war began with Beyonce. <coughs> it was Super Bowl Sunday the previous afternoon. Beyonce surprised her fans by releasing a politically charged I have to disagree with that. New formation. I am reading from money.cnn.com. <laughs> the bottom line is, and most of you know, that on yesterday, there was a the final stages of the purge at MSNBC, the Black Purge. Harris Perry won the Beyonce battle but lost the war which had been raging for months. Now she is on strike, refusing to host until she can return to the substantive, meaningful, and autonomous work that she saw herself doing at MSNBC with the MS MHP show. On January 31st, she awkwardly co-hosted her own show from Iowa ahead of the caucuses there the following week, Super Bowl weekend. Her show's branding was stripped away and replaced by a generic Place for Politics title. In a brief phone conversation, Paris Harris Harris Perry said the February preemptions were merely the most visible manifestation of the channel's marginalization of her show. She wrote a letter that was published in the New York Times about her discontent at MSNBC. By the time she wrote that letter, it was evident, through action not word, that she had been canceled. MSNBC, of course, disputes this point of view, and we thank CNN for that summary. Okay. So where are we? The the dark days of the Negro Whisperers have come. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, first there was um, uh, Al Sharpton. Mm-hmm. No, there was Toure. Then there was Joy Ann Reed. Then there was Karen Fenny. Now it's Melissa Harris turn. Did she not see this coming? Uh no. probably not. Well, no. I have a theory. I'd like to share my theory. I've I've been thinking about this and I I've been reconfiguring it and I, and I and I think I have a strong analysis of went down. Because if you read it the things in order, you get a picture. This is what happened. Okay. So they preempted her show for two weekends in a row because of election coverage. She did the Beyonce show, and she wanted to do the Beyonce stuff, and they were fighting with her because they wanted her to do this strict presidential news. They capitulated and let her do Beyonce. Uh, she uh, she had been sending them emails, and she wasn't responding to them. And uh, basically they told her to come in, for today's coverage of the South Carolina primary, she decided that she basically smells the blood in the water, that her show is probably going to be phased out, and that uh, she does not, and that she's losing control of the show. So she sends an email to her staff only, basically laying down the gauntlet. You know, I am on strike, and I want my show back. 
and I want it back on my terms, all right? This is what happens, though. She says this to her staff and her coworkers. That email is leaked by someone to the New York Times. The New York Times... my, my thought about that is it was Jamil Smith. Go ahead. No, I don't think he leaked it. I think it, let me tell you, I think it was an MSNBC executive, and I'll tell you why. Because that email, when it was made in public, what she said in that email, it gave MSNBC plausible deniability. And you see the plausible deniability in the New York Times piece. Because they can say her reaction was so out of control, and so and say we didn't see this coming. Everything was wonderful. What happened? Look what this woman said. Do you think we can hire her back? There's nothing we can do. She's she's burned our bridges, and they can terminate her contract. And the and the reason why I believe that's what went down is because if you read her email, her email the goal was not to quit the job. The goal was to basically create a strike situation and force them to renegotiate to give her back her show on her terms. I don't think she predicted MSNBC leaking that email. Once they leaked that email, the New York Times contacted her, and then she immediately recants the racial language. I am not anyone's mammy or black bobblehead. She says what? She says, I don't think race was a factor in my termination. They contact the president of MSNBC. He says, we're shocked about this. We don't know what happened. And the next thing that happens is Jameel Smith leaks the whole email on Medium. Why does he leak the email? Because she realizes that if she doesn't get the full email out, MSNBC and mainstream media can completely control the direction of the story, and she can't even get sympathy for her position. So she has to at least get the email out to at least try to use the sympathy of her viewers as her last bargaining chip. Because if she doesn't do that, she basically has given mainstream American media the ability to shape the narrative. And now she's in a position where the only chip she has is to hope that the pleas from her viewership and supporters is enough to get MSNBC to renegotiate. And for, according to what I just shared with you guys, I read in the Washington Post, MSNBC has basically said that her email burns bridges and she's out. Well, what do you guys think of, what do you guys think of my theory? Well, wait a minute. I, I just want to say before, before <laughs> uh, anybody else says anything, Yvette Carnell at BreakingBrown.com <laughs> wrote... <laughs> Wrote a piece, and the headline is Meeting Called as Negro Whisperers Predictably Losing Their Job as Obama's Clock Winds Down. And and my question, uh, in addition to whatever else you're going to say, is that is this what this is all about, that Obama's clock is winding down and we don't need any more Negro translators? For, listen, for for me, this was this was a very predictable course of action. These, you think about how many of these people, how many of these people were at MSNBC when Obama was elected? Okay, these people were brought in because this became part of the conversation. 
you know, this idea that this idea that we need racial translators, that black people speak 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 like E. T. You know, we we need somebody to interpret for us. What is Obama thinking? Is he angry? Can he be angry? Can black people be angry? You worked in corporate America. Were you an angry black man? Did you have to did you have to, you know, make your voice sort of effeminate? You know, I mean, this, these are the sorts of conversations that people were having. And so these people were brought in to have that conversation. And they were also brought in to manipulate the black audience because Policy-wise, Obama wasn't helping black people. So you had to have somebody there who could talk to black people and convince black people that what you're seeing with your eyes isn't true, that, you know, Obamacare is for you. Even though black people have benefited least from Obamacare, he had to, there has to be somebody there with a black face to tell you this guy is good for you. We're not going to believe it with black people. So you bring in Sharpton, who has a history of, you know, being a, you know, a street preacher. And, and, and pseudo-activism and all of that and running in front of, you know, there's no camera he ever found he didn't like. So you bring him in, you bring Melissa Harris-Perry in. And, and think about it, when, when Melissa Harris-Perry was brought in, you also had a lot of black people talking about how black people never show up on the Sunday shows. So you had Melissa Harris-Perry there who was bringing in black academics, and they were most of what they were saying was sort of this, was sort of this, 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 this sort of mainstream, borderline neoliberal sometimes, you know, assessment of politics. So it wasn't helping, but it was validating black people in a way that black people needed to be validated, especially college-educated black people got a lot of validation through that show. But it, 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 and, and, and in terms of it was, it was usually like cultural validation. We're angry about what's happening to Trayvon Martin. We're angry that this, that, that, this, that, this, that this young black man is dead or whatever, what have you. But there were never, you know, in terms of, in terms of really assessing anything, you're not going to get that assessment about capitalism. That's never going to happen, so we know that. But it wasn't, it was all about identity. The, the One of the few times I did watch Melissa Harris play, I, I turned over there and Nicole Ari Parker on there, who's married to Boris Kojo, was on there talking about black hair. There was a lot of that kind of conversation. There was a lot of, there was a lot of feminism and there was a lot of, you know, that sort of thing. You know, and occasionally you would get some black poverty in there. And so black people really felt like, you know, this is our time. You know, we're validated. We're here. But what they didn't understand is just like you came in with Obama, you're going out with Obama. Because if Trump goes in there, you're going to see more white men. You're probably going to see a few more Latinos. If Hillary Clinton, if Hillary Clinton gets in there, Rachel Maddow is the woman of the day. But nobody needs a bunch of redundant Negroes. That's a good point. I agree with that analysis absolutely 100%. I agreed with it when we first talked about it. But I mean, I think well, we, I think Dr. The biggest... Curry and I have talked about Melissa Harris-Perry on this program uh, a number of times. Yeah. Um, and 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 the idea. I, I mean, I mean, I, we have to talk about this. MSNBC owns her show. MSNBC is her employer. The two CEOs that she mentions in her letter by name are the people who control everything at MSNBC. There's nothing else left to control. And I, for the life of me, couldn't imagine that this got so personal, that it got so public, that she thought she was going to be able to win this one. For instance, I mean, I'm a very practical kind of person. I've been an executive. She will, you know, the bottom line for everybody that's hoping that she will go back with her show, all the people who loved her show, 
and and you know, and she made a statement that, and I quote: "While MSNBC may believe that I am wor- worthless, I know better. I know who I am. I know why MHP show is unique and valuable. I will not sell short myself or this show." But the thing is, even I have had to, over my 33 years of broadcasting, had to test out what I was doing on the air and was I crossing the line. And please, let's not forget that her show was performing third or last in its demographic in in, in relation to its uh, its competitors. That's something I learned as a result. And I was like, well, here's an here's 800-pound gorilla. How is this woman's show doing? Did she Can she say, listen, I'm bringing in ratings? She was performing in January. She was the fourth of fourth of the of four cable shows in her demographic. And consistently, according to, to that CNN article you're reading, she came in third place out of three networks. So the show wasn't doing well. Which means she had well. no leverage. Which means she had no leverage for, for whatever stunt she was trying to pull. I mean, one of the things that she could have done was she could have allowed her lawyers to handle this matter, uh, to reread, renegotiate, retranslate her contract about her control over the show. The other is that every network was preempting every show for these crazy caucuses that were going on, and the non there, there's so much content around the election that preemption <laughs> was going to happen. Well, listen, and this is that made sense from a pro- programming point of view. Okay, the other felt, thing that she could have done was simply call in sick while she was regrouping. I mean, you cannot have the lion, as my good friend, who I miss so much, Oscar Brown Jr., uh, would say, you cannot have the lion thinking that that he or she can beat the li- uh, the elephant's ass. You can't have it. The jungle is a mighty roar. Took off like a shot from a 44. He found the elephant where the tall grass grows and said, I come to punch you in your long nose. The elephant looked at the lion in surprise and said, Boy, you better go pick on somebody your side. But the lion wouldn't listen. He made a pass. The elephant slapped him down in the grass. The lion roared and sprung from the ground. And that's when that elephant really went to town. I mean, he whipped that lion for the rest of the day. And I still don't see how the lion got away. But he dragged on off more dead than alive. And that's when that monkey started his signifying job. And that's where it's going to end up. Am I right? Up in the tree. (laughs) That's just where it's going to end up. I mean, I I really share her passion, uh, which is why I, I mean, she's working for a corporation. You know, she makes a statement. She sends a letter to her staff. That's That's her staff who works with her, but they are two employees of the corporation. This was so crazy that Yvette and Pascal, you know, I was questioning whether or not it was orchestrated. It was too crazy. If she wanted to, if she wanted to go out. 
with a protest statement to say that they are sabotaging her show, they are denying her editorial control, and they are basically not giving the show the the merit it deserves based on the content. I don't have a problem making that statement. I just think that the way she did it was poorly handled. I think the best way she could have done it was simply Friday send them a letter of resignation, tell them I am no longer coming in, and then make a public statement to the media explaining why she left the show and put it in the context of you know basically why are all these black voices being purged after Obama's out. And she basically tacitly indicted MSNBC and the media establishment for using black voices in the Obama age and now getting rid of them, and she basically has resigned because she did not want to be used for that purpose and went out. I think, fine, her show would have been over, but I think she would have salvaged her image in the eyes of not only her fans for going out on principle, but she would have been able to redeem and recoup popularity in some other mainstream format. I think that the way she has handled it is so... uh, it, it, it's it, it's it's so messy and so drama filled that she has taken away any kind of taste any mainstream media vehicle will have for her as a result of the way she handled this exit. So my position is that I have no problem with a a radical statement of dissatisfaction. I think that a, res- a resignation with a public statement afterward would have been a better way to handle this. With instead of a kind of. Uh, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a, a temper tantrum ending with "I want my show back." It doesn't. I don't think that works well. Tommy, I mean, right? But we have to think about how Melissa Harris Perry's also positioned herself. I mean, the tantrum is is, is a symbolic act that, uh, you know, she uh, evidently she believed would draw her public closer to her. I mean, remember, she she's the epitome of a certain uh, identity politic. The educated black woman, the black feminist politic that represents kind of the progressive outgrowth of Obama politics and era. So the fact that she did what she did is really kind of a hearkening to the kind of the kind of things that we see all the time with, you know, neoliberal black feminism, which is, you know, we're we're the most progressive, we're the most radical, we're the most visible. I'm fighting against the system, even though I have a show that's really marked me not only as part of the system, but a handmaiden to it. So, you know, I think I don't think that we kind of read this outside of the way that Melissa Harris Perry has not only introduced her personal politics, but also the way that she's tried to represent the kind of pro-Obama, uh, pro-black feminist, uh, pro-moderate, you know, lens for liberal white America. Because we can't make any mistake. Melissa Harris Perry's show is not for black people, and it's certainly not for working class black people. Her her show was a was the medium by which liberal America uh, got a peep inside or a peek inside of how some moderate blacks conceptualize politics, conceptualize gender, conceptualize the horrors of race. You know, uh, and given that this is this is a call for them. Her resignation was a call for that white liberal media to recognize her as a victim. Now, will that work? Who knows. But I mean, it's this is part of the way that she's articulated her public persona, as well as kind of her intellectual heritage to the rest of America. And so, what did MSNBC do today? They brought in <laughs> Joy Reid. They not even brought in Joy Reid. There's an article that came out in the Washington Post tonight that basically says that uh, she's done, she's over. Yeah. That her email yep. basically severed ties. Earth. And, you simply uh, cannot indict. You you simply cannot publicly indict your employer. I mean, well, and you we're guys talking missed my about point. a one point. Wait, 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 wait! I just want our audience to know 
that we're talking about what's at stake, what's in play, a $1.5 million contract that doesn't expire until October. Go ahead, Pascal. The point I wanted to make, Janice, is that I I think this was so poorly handled that she did not intend for this to be made public. I I absolutely agree. But I how think can that you? She, that, that, that goes back to naivete. How can you? How can you send an email if you really wanted to do this? You could have told your. You could have told somebody yeah. to have one person or something that I'm not coming in tomorrow. I'm calling in. Saying, wink, wink, nod, nod. And if they said something, you could go. That didn't happen. You have no paper trail. What are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. But you, how how naive are you to send this this email to these people who are going to be like they're going to be freaked out too because they're thinking I'm out of a job. So. You, you know that somebody's going to reach out to somebody and say, what's going on here? Like that in and of itself that you didn't think that it was possible that somebody on your Nerdland staff would, would, would either leak the email or reach out and be like, you know, she's not going to be here. You know what I mean? Well, well, first of all, I think what happened is that it wasn't leaked by the staff that she sent the email to. I think what happened is that she sent the email to the staff. The staff went to management and said, she's not coming in tomorrow. And they said, really, how do you know? She sent an email. Let me see the email. And that MSNBC exactly. leaked it to the New York Times because they said, you just gave us an out. Yes. You just gave us an out. You we gave us plausible deniability. We still have to pay Sharpton. We got rid of Golden Tail, and we didn't pay her anything. And uh, Toure and Karen Fenny, and they went silently and quietly into the night. And this is the biggest contract that we have other than Rachel Maddow and Chris Matthews. So, and, and we're trying to bring rigid news, new white news, the whiteness news, to this network, and this helps us. Yeah, she gave them plausible deniability. Because yep. now they can Absolutely. go to every mainstream media network in America and say one simple question, would you hire her back? And they would all say, hell no. Yeah. I do want to say to the callers that are on the board, I so apologize. Um, when we become commercial, independent uh, radio, we'll have more than two hours because we do need more than two hours, or we'll become commercial. I'll come, you guys will pay me. I will have supporters and and ads and all kinds of things, and we can do this every night. Um, but until then, uh, sometimes I have to put callers aside. I do apologize. You've been waiting so long. Let's get back to um, what is going to happen in terms of we are left. Folks, I want you to know we are left with Don Lemon and Al Sharpton at 6 o'clock on Sunday morning, whatever time. I don't know who we is because I don't look to any of those Negroes, right? Yeah, I don't see them as real commentators. But, I mean, this is, look, this is the problem. I mean, you know, Janice, this is is always going to be the problem is that, you know, uh, Miss Harris Perry, you know, presented herself in an Obama era, now moved into a post-Obama era, as a new voice for the black public intellectual and for the black public that's based on appealing to white liberals. And you've seen, I mean, think, I mean, amongst academics, you've seen this really define the way that black academics have built their, their public intellectual careers. We, they've 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 embraced blogs. They've embraced you know the the YouTube channels. They've embraced every 
opportunity to speak on political issues despite not having degrees in it. And it's all in the hopes that one day MSNBC would give them their show, too. And right, this and is, this, so that, this that's has a been very important. Div- yeah, this is a very important important point, is that what Melissa Harris-Perry and MSNBC did was not only change the way that blacks thought about politics from the Obama presidency, but it changed the way that black academics thought about black intellectual production so that they could move into the place or get the same rewards that Melissa Harris-Perry did. Now, in that world, now that that's over, what you have is a whole generation Right, because you think grad school is about six, seven, eight years. A whole generation of young scholars who have marketed themselves to a public intellectual career that don't have the tools for intellectual production. So the oh. commentaries that you got from Melissa Harris Perry that literally reminded to a little more than support Obama, right, and different identity iterations that fall into that trap. Then what can you expect from people that now have to deal with a reality where you don't have a public voice, but actually have to comment on policy, actually have to comment on sociological events, actually have to comment on the troubles that are materially affecting the black community? We're we're in for we're in for some very shoddy analysis. The so reckoning. That, yeah, yeah, but I mean, this is this is not a, that's what I'm saying. Like I think that when people are looking at Melissa Harris Perry and said, "Oh, it's over," you know, I was never a big fan of hers. But at the same time, I think that this also represents the failure of what we're going to do in terms of policy and and political commentary in the black community. We're going to be stuck on the back of people that are just like 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 Perry did in many cases, just giving their impressions. Waking up in the morning saying this is how I feel Rather than people who are serious political analysts That are trying to tell us about what's going on in the black community And furthermore, now we have to ask ourselves a question Is is the white liberal public a real audience for black people and black problems? So now that you don't have someone who's the central figure That has a whole show translating black problems for white liberals Now you have to ask, well now what are black people going to do? Are they going to recognize that white liberals was never really their audience? And if they recognize that, then what other avenues are they going to come to? Are they going to go to black talk radio? Are they not going to go to black independent radio? If they don't have those kinds of connections and sensibilities Can they even speak to working class black people Which is the audience that many of these shows and outlets target? It's a very real problem in terms of how people, academics, and social commentators actually now make that connection to black people, given what they're talking about. Well, I can tell you that I have a list of about 12 people who have previously been guests on this show uh, that over the last four years um, have been hedging their bets on... MSNBC and CNN, uh, 16 of our previous guests have appeared on Melissa Harris Perry's program. We didn't pay much attention to them when they were on Our Common Ground talking with us about us. But we did pay attention to them when they hit MSNBC. Now it's over. And um, it's going to be interesting because Melissa Harris Perry's show had a tremendous team that was putting that together. She's not going to get that anywhere else. Her TV career is over, and she's certainly not going to get it for radio. So we'll see what happens. I, I don't think she's going to be a lost voice. I I think she's going to be lost in, the, in, in, in what to do next. Um, and... 
you know, she does, she is a professor at Wake Forest University. So we we uh, will look. Uh, Pascal Robert, Tommy J. Curry, Yvette Carnell, thank you so much for enlightening us tonight, and we look forward to having you back with us on these topics and others. And I know I didn't, the nomination didn't come up, but we're running out of time. Next week at Our Common Ground, Ruby Sales is going to be with us to talk about Hands Off Our Children, the campaign for 300 people to protest police brutality against black children. I'll see you here at Our Common Ground next Saturday, 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you. Oh, come. You know, the black people... Oh, come. You know, the black people in this country have been disenfranchised by government, not by charities. So when you're disenfranchised by government, it's the job of government to make you whole. The government gave us red line. The government gave us Jim Crow and all these other things. The government allowed allowed white people, allowed white race in the South called Dixiecrats to systematically keep us out of federal programs. So it's your job to put it back in there. And a few years of affirmative action doesn't do that. So if this is all, and I told people early on that this is what the first black president is giving us. This is what he's signaling. And if we don't do something soon, we're screwed. So we didn't do anything soon. We're screwed. You shouted me down. You elevated up people who were like, yeah, he's my man. That's my president. And so that's what you get. You have this whole naive community of black people who are like not politically mature, you know, who have been just sort of brought into mainstream news to kind of cheer for the president and talk about how bad Republicans are. And at the end of the day, you may have a psychological bump. You may feel psychologically better because that's what you did, but we have nothing for it. A psychological feel-good moment, a symbolic moment gives us nothing. It doesn't feed you. It doesn't give you a job. It doesn't give you political power. And if there's any lesson that we can learn from this, this what we're in right now is, is to stop being so symbolic and focus on things that actually matter like policy. And now it's a winter. Winter in America.